choices. We're faced with choices every day. Do you know research tells us that the average adult, I don't know if you call yourself an average adult, the average adult makes 35,000 choices a day. So think about that for you in the first in the first few hours of today. What have your choices been? Perhaps to exercise or relax? Perhaps to uh, drive to church or to walk? Apple juice or orange juice? For us, it was the crudes or El Canto, I think it was. Major choice in our house. Do you know the research from Cornell University in the USA say that 226.7 decisions each day are made on food alone. Wow. How do these choices come and what do we do with these choices? Uh, And again, the experts tell us that there are six ways that we will deal with these choices. Impulsiveness. We'll just choose on instinct. Compliance. The most pleasing to us. We'll delegate, we'll push the decision to others and we'll get them to decide for us. Avoidance, we'll just deflect that decision making. Balancing, we'll weigh up the options and the factors. And then perhaps the, the more energy goes into reflection and prioritisation. These decisions that we make and spend time and stop and think about it. Perhaps on those that have most impact. Choices, choices, choices. Look back to Matthew's gospel. Why does a tax collector, an ex-tax collector, now a disciple of Jesus, why does he write his account of the Lord Jesus? Well, we know that with Matthew, it's not to give his readers an understanding of Jesus alone. It's not so that you and I might be better prepped, better educated, Uh, Better sorted for our our re-exam at school. Look, he brings evidence before us, but with the evidence, he wants his predominantly Jewish audience to see who Jesus is so that they would make a decision on him. There's choices that they have with the Lord Jesus. He brings evidence, but with the evidence, he wants them to see that it's Jesus, who fulfills the law. It's Jesus who fulfills the prophecies. It's Jesus who is the long-awaited Messiah. It's Jesus, the one in whom the covenant promises of Israel are all found. The one who makes it all make sense. So back in Matthew 4, Matthew recorded these words. And he said, look, here's Jesus to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, verse 15. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And Matthew recalls at this time, from that time on, Jesus began to preach Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here is the long-awaited king. Matthew wants his readers to get this and now choose on him. You have to decide what to do with Jesus. 
Repent is Matthew's advice on the words of Jesus. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no fence to sit on. This isn't about neutral head knowledge. What do we do with Jesus? We're journeying through the last days and now hours of Jesus' life. And Matthew records the choices that the people are making around Jesus. Choices, choices, choices. Do you remember last week, Peter? He just was not brave enough to follow through on his conviction to follow Jesus. I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. I'll be by your side. Remember his reaction? He wept bitterly in the courtyard when a servant girl recognised who he was. He wept bitterly, for he denied his king. He was remorseful. There was repentance. And he came back to Jesus just verses before Our verses today, Judas, he betrayed Jesus over his love of money. And we see in Judas, we see he's remorseful. Verse 4 of 27, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Judas is sorry. But there's a difference between Peter and Judas. They both chose to reject Jesus in the moment, but there's a difference. Peter came back to Jesus, but Judas does not. There's no repentance, there's no faith, there's no coming back to Jesus for repentance. As we come to today's passage and we see the choices around Jesus, the question is, will you choose him? Will you choose to follow him? I mean that for you as a Christian and for you who aren't. What will you do with Jesus? Will today you choose to follow him? Will the next hour you choose to follow him? Let's have a look at some of the choices in today's passage. Here's our first one, the choice of Pilate. Pilate, the Roman governor of the time, and he's now questioning Jesus. Remember last week uh, we had the trial with the Elders, the Jewish elders and teachers of the law. And now it is in the courtroom of the Roman governor, Pilate. Verse 11, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said so. Yes, yes, I am. And not quite, not quite as you say it, for he called himself Something different. We looked at that last week. And Pilate is amazed. Jesus, don't you hear the testimony that they are bringing against you, verse 13. And you see through this conversation, there's very little chat back from Jesus. In fact, there's none. There's nothing at all. Jesus makes no reply. What does Pilate do? He's getting nothing out of Jesus. There's a choice that he faces. So he has a well-known criminal brought out. He's notorious, a famous criminal. And as he faces this uneasy choice, 
What does he do? He delegates. Remember one of the six things right at the beginning we talked about? It's a little bit like the movie Gladiator. Win the crowd and you will win your freedom. That's going through Pilate's mind at this moment. The crowd want Jesus dead. But Pilate knows that he's innocent. So he hands over the choice to the crowd, Barabbas or Jesus. The irony of the name of Barabbas, he's Jesus too. Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, the king of the Jews. I give you this Jesus or I give you this Jesus. Which Jesus will you choose? Look, before we get to the crowd and the choice of the crowd, we'll get to that in a moment. Let's follow through the choice of Pilate. He knows that Jesus is innocent. Look at verse 18. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. And Matthew records that Pilate knew the intentions of the elders and the chief priests. And Pilate knows that Jesus has upset the delicate balance of Their faith of the Jews' faith. And he could not care less about that. But he could care less about something. He knew that Jesus was not worthy of being on trial. But he also knew that if the crowds and the crowds that they were, if they were going to kick up such a fuss, he knew his reputation was on the line. What is more, look, his wife sends him a message. History books tell us that this is Claudia. Procula, the daughter of the emperor Tiberius. Husband, verse 19, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. His wife is telling him that Jesus is innocent. Perhaps she has seen him, heard him teach. And a troubling dream has come upon her. But the pressure of the elders, the chief priests, is great. And they continue to persuade. Look at verse 20. Chief priests, the elders, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. And he asks them, which of the two do you want me to release? Barabbas, they answered. And the crowd join in, verse 24. Pilate saw he was getting nowhere. Nowhere in his decision making. But that instead an uproar was starting. He took water at this time. And he washed his hands in front of the crowd. And he says, I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Pilate, too concerned with his reputation. The threat of an uproar starting. On his watch, in his province, it's unbearable. What would the emperor think of him? And then the daughter of the emperor that has been warned the best he can do is wash his hands and say, not my concern, not my responsibility. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. The choice of Pilate. Can we say that Pilate is innocent of Jesus? That washing of his hands means that he has nothing to do with with his death? No, we can't say that, of course. Pilate is weak. 
He knows that Jesus is innocent. He has the power to release him, yet he does not choose to set him free. Instead, he pleads his innocence of the consequence of the death of Jesus. I did my best, he's saying. Look, I I tried, but he didn't. And nor can we. We can never do our best. Because we're unable to carry out on our convictions. You see, we're weak, the Bible says. We are. We protect ourselves. We are in it for our own self-interest. If you're not a Christian here listening in, do you know the Bible says that that's a status issue for us, for you? That there's nothing that you can do with the choices that you make because they'll all be marred and tainted by sin, by a rejection of God. If you are a Christian, then that's your battle. Do you see as a Christian now, you've got a battle every single day of the choices that you've got to face. Apple juice or orange juice, that's not a problem. Crudes or Encanto, no, 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 that's not a problem. But every day, out of the 35,000 choices that I've got to make, the battle for the Christian is, will I serve King Jesus now or not? And let's try and home in on a weak area of life. Perhaps a dark pocket of life. Can Can I get you to think of somewhere, something, something that perhaps you, you can't seem to shake? You'd hate to stand up in front of anyone and, and, and address and tell them of, of, a, of, a, of a dark issue that you've got. And when I say that, I, I simply mean perhaps the anger that flares up when the children refuse to listen to you and you know it's an issue. Perhaps it could be the over-dependence on alcohol. And you'd actually know that it's an issue. Perhaps you hold material goods so close to you, you just can't help but buy that item of clothing that you know you don't really need. Perhaps it's the desperate desire to be liked, the word or the action that you know you do to make others notice your efforts. Perhaps the habitual return into pornography. The reluctance to part with money that you know should first be set aside for God and the church. Perhaps you're too concerned with reputation, holding on too tightly to the reins of power that you might have within work. Perhaps it's the the lies that continue to come out of your mouth. Do you know like Pilate, you try and wash your hands of it, you pretend that all is well, that actually it's okay. As long as others don't see it, it's okay. It can just sit there. I've done my best. I've done my job. Some of us us are reading this book in growth groups. I hope you're enjoying it. Chapter 9, this is what he says. Do not minimise your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defence. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, who is advocating for you on the basis of, your, of his own wounds. Let your own unrighteousness in all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous in all his brightness and sufficiency.
Perhaps there's a lesson for us in the way that Pilate chooses Jesus or not. Secondly, let's look at the choice of the crowd. What is the heart of sin? What is ever the heart of sin? The heart of sin is a rejection of God, a rejection of the Lord Jesus. Verse 22, let's go back. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked? And they all answered, crucify him. You know it's not in that tone and you know it's not uh, as loud as I've um, just talked it out. It's nothing like a whisper. It's nothing like a chant. They all answered, crucify him. They're baying for his blood. Why, says Pilate? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. You can imagine the reply back. They shouted all the louder. They don't answer his question. Crucify him, crucify him. And here's the incredible thing that five days prior, these people were the ones praising God. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the same lips, from the abhorrent and wicked call to kill the son of God. And what a dreadful thing to say in reply to Pilate who gives them the responsibility. He washes his hands of the whole business. I'm innocent, declares Pilate as we've seen. See what the people say? Verse 25, his blood is on us and on our children. This is what they're saying. We will be held guilty, declare the people. Uh, Now it's on us, declare the people. We'll take the responsibility. Look, if anyone asks or accuses, we'll take the blame. Oh, the sad reality. Of this comment, his blood is on us and on our children. Come back with me to Matthew 23, if you've got your Bibles. Verse 33, Jesus is speaking to the leaders of the Jews and the Jews themselves. And he says, verse 33 of 23, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. See, God will hold this generation, the generation, Uh, that Jesus is speaking to, accountable for this wretched act. Verse 25 is such a crucial verse. His blood is on us and on our children. Hold us to account, an account God held them to. You know, horrible history in AD 69, when Jerusalem was ransacked by the Romans. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says this, it's grim reading, I won't read much, but listen to these words. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. 
Most of them were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Around the altar, heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, and down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood as those bodies killed at the top slithered to the bottom. There was no pity for age, no regard for rank. Little children, old men, lames and priests. And he goes on. It's a grotesque historical account. And we get here the first pangs of God in judgment. Judgment they faced because judgment they wanted be his blood on our hands. See, in their rejection of Jesus, the people prove that they are representative of all people. So careful we don't just pocket this now into that moment of time. All of this guilt will come upon all people as we choose to reject God. As we choose to reject Jesus. Romans 3 verse 10, for we have already made this charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin, says Paul. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become together worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Where does that leave us today? It's hard hearing, isn't it? Isn't that hard hearing? But this is what our sin evokes. This is what our rejection of Jesus. Us saying, yeah, 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 no problem with Jesus. (laughs) If he's real, I'll take the blame for that. I'll take the rap for that. This is how God reacts in judgment. And isn't that too harsh, you might say? Isn't this too harsh of God to judge in such a way? Or perhaps these words describe why we might think that God's divine wrath is overstated. Perhaps because we don't feel the true weight of our sin. Listen to these words and then we'll just have a moment to reflect. From Words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know we are sinners. And that is to have some dim, glittering conception of God. You see, in other words, what he's saying is we don't feel the weight of our sin because of our sin. And therefore we'll never see the true judgment of God because we don't see the weight of the consequences of our sin which leads to the judgment of God. See, if you're not aware of sin today, your sin today, your rejection of the Lord Jesus today, would these words bring conviction? If you're aware of your sin, may it turn you to delight in Jesus That he's dealt with the consequences of sin. But let's not pretend that sin, a rejection of God, is not a real thing. May it convict you. 
May it turn you to delight in Jesus. But let's not pretend that it's not a real thing we saw there in history. The judgment of God is a first pang of the judgment that God will deliver on a rejection of Jesus. And then finally, let's look at the choice of Jesus. The choice of Pilate, the choice of the people, and the choice of Jesus. Verse 26, Pilate, he releases Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate has him flogged still. He has him scourged. Flogging often killed a man. And so Pilate still sends him for a flogging and he was beaten to a pulp, unrecognisable. The prophet Isaiah says... He's flogged with a leather whip. And the leather whip is entwined with pieces of lead and with bones, sharp pieces. And they would rip into the flesh and the muscles and the sinews. And the body of the man who was flogged. It's a graphic picture if you've ever seen the passion of the Christ. It depicts it well, if we can say that. And at this point, I'm... You come to the text and you think, why Jesus? Because he has a choice. And he doesn't say a word. He doesn't push back to any of the accusations. Look what happens in verse 27. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. The soldiers play what was known as the king's game, gambling. It's like rolling a dice. Maybe you can remember it. Those university days, if you were there, the crude drinking games. Roll the dice. Whatever number comes up was the amount uh, of fingers that you had to drink. It was like that. The number that came up was the number of times that they spat on him. The number of times that they struck him over the head. And look at the text. It says again and again. And the crown of thorns that Jesus has on is not a little bramble bush. An inch, at least an inch thick. The crown of thorns stuck onto his head. And as they take the club And strike the head of Jesus. They're not just striking his head. But they strike the crown of thorns that sinks the thorns deeper into his head and skull. And I'm left asking the question, why Jesus? Jesus has a choice. And then they lead him to the cross. Verse 31, after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And they get Simon of Cyrene to carry it. In verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is the king Of the Jews, and still they keep heaping insults on him. Those passed by hurled insults at at him, verse 39, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. 
Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. Why, Jesus? Why? And the song, the old song, I cannot tell how silently he suffered. As with his peace he graced this place of tears. Or how his heart upon the cross was broken, the crown of pain to three and thirty years. But this I know, he heals the brokenhearted. And stays our sin and calms our lurking fear and lifts the burden from the heavy laden for still the saviour, saviour of the world is here. Why Jesus? Why? He saved others, but he can't save himself. Why won't he save himself? Why won't he? Why doesn't he choose to save himself? At the heart of the cross is substitution. He chooses to take your place. He chose to take my place, the compassionate heart of a merciful God. The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. And you see at that moment the dam breaks, the dam breaks. And it is not my loveliness that wins his love for me. It is my unloveliness that wins his love for me as Jesus chooses to die a cruel death in my place. And our hearts have to gasp to catch up with this. It's not how the world works. Why would someone take the place of another? It's not how my own heart works. But here's my choice. If I bow in humble submission. Letting God set the terms by which he loves us. If I choose to acknowledge Jesus. Then it's his life for my life. You see some of us need to be convicted by sin and its consequences. Some of us today need to be convicted. Some of us need to be convinced of his love. And we need to let him beat the condemnation that we think we now face. We don't if we trust Jesus because he chose to go to the cross for me, for you. Knowing what the consequences would be of his silence, Jesus wanted to do his father's will and win your salvation. He chose the cross. The big question is, as Matthew wants to portray through the whole of his gospel account, will you choose Jesus with the evidence before you? And you know I'm speaking to you if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's as relevant for you as it is for a Christian. If you are a Christian, it's for you. Will you choose Jesus this week in the 35,000 choices a day that you've got? Will you choose Jesus? Will you choose to follow him? Because he chose the cross for you. We're going to sing of...